0: Every second After
1: all we promised we be cordial. Hey everyone, Kristen Sonata Walker here, and I am here doing one of the favorite topics I love in mental health, which is comedy. We have Frank King, who is also known as the mental health comedian. He's a suicide prevention and postvention public speaker and trainer who's turned his own battle with depression into keynote keynote. We'll definitely edit that. maybe not maybe not keynote's a new new word keynote speaking uh we probably won't edit that because that's kind of funny anyway um you wrote for the tonight show for 20 plus years i mean it's like the list is so impressive uh of what you've done there's so many things that you have done and know that i want to know about so thank you so much for coming on my show
2: i am delighted to be here i uh i I'm delighted to be here.
1: Good. (laughs) Well, um, tell our listeners, you know, your story. I mean, how the heck did you go from, you know, like writing for The Tonight Show to then performing in comedy to then, you know, bringing mental health into the conversation? Because a lot of comedians, I would say almost all of them, have serious mental health struggles. But the ones I've interviewed on my show um even during the interview they will say well we don't really bring that up you know when we're doing our our bits
2: yeah well i'll make a living bringing it up when i'm doing my thing um <laughs> there's a comedian out of canada unfortunately now deceased named mike McDonald, who has an expression he would tell you there are two kinds of comics diagnosed and undiagnosed um <laughs> The question comes up, by the way, this is the elephant in the room, and I often address this first when I'm doing our keynote, um, <laughs> is, uh, or keynote, whichever they prefer.
0: Right.
2: It's, it's um, Wait, let me get this straight. You're a comedian, you're talking about depression and suicide, it's exactly how does that work? Well, here's the deal. Number one, I believe a comedian is a good choice in this case because... If you think about it, the comedian's job is and has been since the time of the court jester to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
2: believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip. Uh, Two, I believe, with this humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there's life. That nobody dies laughing. Um, Three. Depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was all of four years old. Mm. And I myself came close enough to dying by suicide in 2010 that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, didn't pull the trigger, (laughs) Um, which I do in my keynote. I say that in my keynote. And I was doing a keynote in Philadelphia. and A friend of mine in the audience, I wasn't aware of that. And so here comes number five uh unaware of that he comes up afterwards he goes hey man how come you didn't pull the trigger i go hey man <laughs> could you try to sound a little less disappointed um, right. that's where the humor is in in mental health and depression and suicide it's not jokes it's the organic sort of things that uh, had a meeting planner said to me one time frank um, looking forward to seeing your um keynote i said well what do you want me to cover she goes and she was well aware that I, you know, had almost, you know, had come close to dying by suicide by a gun, but she wasn't thinking. I don't think at the moment. She goes, um, what, do, what do I want you to cover? Um, just give me some bullet points. I said, Michelle. <laughs> I said, oh my god! Oh my god! I didn't mean, to say. I said, oh, it's okay. Hold on. It's okay. It's, I just love a good turn of a phrase.
1: Right. Like if a designer that saw you at a show came to your house and said, did you want your den to be um, painted in gunmetal gray or things like that would not?
2: (laughs) No. No, But that's, you know, those are the things, by the way, that's the power of humor. I think, you know, 45 to 60 minutes and a keynote about death and dying is very difficult to take. But if you can give them a little, I guess, lack of a better term, comic relief along the way it makes it much more digestible um if you can add to that i tell my personal story uh you add a little vulnerability to that right and it's um i when i do a keynote i tell the meeting planner here's the deal we'll do a keynote we'll do 45 60 minutes then we'll do maybe 15 of q a for the entire group and then i say to the group during my keynote look we're gonna do some Q and A, but you may have a question you don't want to ask in front of the entire audience. Like, I'm crazy, can you help me? So I said to the mean player, we need to set aside a room somewhere because there's gonna be people who have questions that want to come up individually. And they said, you sure. And I said, hide behind the tree and watch. So mm-hmm. they set aside a room and sure enough, there are eight people lined up. And I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I didn't even stay at Holiday Inn Express last night, but the people often have a question. Um, you know general questions uh, i think oftentimes it's they've lost someone to suicide and and i feel like it, it, it's almost like i've been some place that their loved one went only i came back
1: mm.
2: and so you know they want to know why why this is the question i get a lot why do they want to die and my answer is my guess is they did not want to die i didn't want to die i just wanted to end the pain right and so that gives them some—I wouldn't say relief, but at least it helps fill in some blanks for them right. when uh, when it comes to the death of a loved one. So, anyway, yeah. that's that's my uh, story.
1: Absolutely, that I, it's something about our human need to have an answer for something, even if you know that answer changes as you evolve as a person, or hopefully you evolve as a person. <laughs>
2: yeah if you're
1: evolving (laughs) right there are those who don't evolve and those who refuse to we know that's a whole other show but um but yeah you you want an answer and um you want one that helps with that pain so yeah absolutely and you know the comedy piece i mean i always think if I can absolutely joke about mental health stuff because I have struggled with mental illness. So I cab- I have permission <laughs> to joke well, about it. Cause if you can't laugh you know about what? it, then.
2: Ugh. Well, you know what, Chris and that is actually, I, I, I teach comedy occasionally. I have some comedy coaching clients and I tell them, here's the deal. Because people have busted me on that. They go, well, how can you make fun of depression and suicide? Well, you can make fun of any group to which you belong. Right. And I have two mental illnesses. One's called major depressive disorder. It's relatively common. I have a second one called chronic suicidality. Not so common. Um, And people always ask, well, describe chronic suicidality. I go, here's the deal. My car broke down a couple of years ago and I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one or three. I could just kill myself. Wow. That's, yeah, it's, uh, it's always an answer or solution for problems large and small if you have chronic suicidality. And the power of saying that uh, out loud, by the way, is because it's little known, I did a uh, showcase for NACA, National Association Campus Activities, 800 students in the audience. A young woman comes up afterwards. She goes, I want to thank you for your keynote. I said, well, you're welcome. She goes, I want to also tell you that you made me weep. I said, how did I make you weep? She goes, well, when you said your car broke down, you had three thoughts. Get it fixed buy a new one, or you could just kill yourself. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I, I thought I was some kind of freak. I didn't know there was a name for it. And when you said that out loud, she said, I, in that moment, realized for the first time, I am not alone. And I wept.
1: Oh, that's wonderful.
2: That's the power of starting the conversation. And the comedy helps that conversation. That's the
1: Well, it helps you digest it. It helps you take it in. Uh, You know, we're talking about things that make people uncomfortable, whether they've struggled with, you know, mental illness or not, it still makes people uncomfortable. So you have to have a delivery system that makes it easy, like a spoonful of sugar. (laughs) Yes. And
2: um, I taught a class for a while. There's a guy named David Grenier. I don't know if you've ever had him on. Mm -hmm. But he created something called StandUpForMentalHealth.com, and it's classes for people with mental illness who want to write and perform stand-up comedy based on their mental illness. And you have to have a mental illness to get in the class. You have to have a mental illness to teach the class. So it's part peer counseling, part um, comedy class. And the, um, the idea is that you do like six weeks, 12 weeks, I guess. And then the 13th week, you put on a show for, the students, family, and the public with the idea that you are changing the perception of what neurotypical or neuronormal people think of when they think of mental illness. Uh, To see these people up on stage, you know, public speaking is apparently a a, a great fear for a large number of people. There's an old Seinfeld joke, uh, public speaking is number one, death and dying is number two fear, which means when you're at a funeral, you'd rather be the guy in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. (laughs) <laughs> um, but when you see these people up on stage, not only public speaking, but, but shining a flashlight into the darkest corners of their existence, uh, it helps to reduce stigma. If you change perceptions, you could change prejudices.
1: Hmm.
2: And I got to tell you, some of those, those are the best comedy students I ever had bar none. The stuff that came out of their mouths needed no editing. I'll give you a couple of my favorite examples, if it's okay. Absolutely. Um, A woman came in. uh, Her name, Well, I won't give you her last name because, you know, comic, uh, client confidentiality. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Lisa came in. She goes, I think she'd been to an AA meeting. She was double diagnosed, alcoholism and depression. She went to an AA meeting. She came to class right after that. She goes, Frank, I think Columbus was an alcoholic. I go, well, okay, I'll bite. She goes, well, you know, his big plan was he's going to sail west to actually get east, which sounds like something you come up with in a bar, Uh, like an alcoholic. Like an alcoholic, he decided to do it, so he takes off. When he got to where he was going, like an alcoholic, he had no idea where he was. When he got back, like an alcoholic, he couldn't tell anybody where he'd been. He had no idea. And, this is my favorite part, he got a woman to finance it twice. I'm like, oh, dear God, Lisa. That is just – I mean, in terms of writing – there's not a syllable in there that doesn't move the narrative forward.
1: Yes, absolutely. Sail it forward. Yes.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. And there was a <laughs> young woman, um, Trish, that uh, my boyfriend said he wanted to break up with me. And I said, Why? well, he wants to see other people. I said, what did you tell him? I'm bipolar. Give me a minute. Oh, my God. <laughs> Again, very tight.
0: He's right. right. my
2: favorite. Camille had a h- horrible backstory. I mean, just horrible. Uh, but again, because everybody in the class is either, uh, everybody in the class, including the teacher, has a diagnosis, so nobody's, nobody is holding anything back. If you put one neuronormal person in the class, it would be an entirely different phenomenon. Camille said, I went to see my psychiatrist. He asked if I'm depressed. Yes. Uh, Thoughts of suicide? Yes. Do you have a plan? She said, I have five plans. <laughs> five plans? She goes, Yeah. Do you want to hear them all or just the ones that involve you? <laughs> oh, dear God. amazingly dark but in terms of comedy writing and impact right just uh so anyway that's again um i and i did a tedx called mental with benefits the evolutionary advantages of mental illness which speaks to what you were talking about at the top about how most comics it seems have some kind of issue i believe the way the way the thing starts out is um, what if those of us diagnosed with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but actually an evolutionary adaptation? What if it is, as Malcolm Gladwell says in his book of such things, the book is um, David and Goliath, what if it's a desirable disadvantage? You would never wish it on anybody, but, and if that is the case, what if we treat the mental illness, therapy and medication, and we embrace, enhance, energize, and celebrate the mental ableness that comes along with it. Hmm. Is it possible? It's actually a third thing, not mental illness, not mental ableness, but a mental otherness. That, And what if we could convince children that, yes, you have a mental illness, but here's the deal. You have a, a mental ableness, a set of almost, I don't know, superpowers that your peers cannot even dream of uh, I believe it would change it would reduce stigma and bullying when I said superpowers my sister my loved little sister Jane who lives with anxiety and depression goes superpowers mm-hmm. we're not the X-Men we're the X-Men <laughs> so, I like that I I've said
1: I've said that about autism what if it's we, we're treating it like this is a problem and they're actually more advanced
2: well, and I, I was speaking on suicide prevention to a group of CEOs. Um, it's called, that's uh, one of the a CEO group. Uh, I can't think of the name of the outfit. Uh, anyway, and one of the gentlemen there heard me say that. And at the break, he came up, you know, and he goes, My son um, has autism. And I said, Well, does he by chance have any superpowers? And he goes, Funny you should say that. He's extremely athletic. We joined a swim club, and within, he's like five years old. Within within 10 days, he taught himself to swim. Now he can't get him out of the pool. And I said, and on land? He goes, he's lightning fast. And I said, well, here's the deal. I would embrace that. And any sport that he has an interest in, I would encourage it because here's the deal. His peers may say something like, yeah, he's weird, but you know what? We're getting ready to pick up teams for football. And if you want a wide receiver, he's the guy you should pick first. Right. Again, reducing stigma and bullying by changing the frame for not only the individual child, but their peers.
1: I like that. I like that idea of, you know, a resiliency that comes with having mental health, you know, mental illness issues.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, they're pushing resiliency. That's a big deal now. We're in resiliency training. And I did a blog post. I said, look, I understand (laughs) your heart's in the right place. But I got to tell you. Most of the people I know, I would say all the people I know with mental illness are amazingly resilient. I think yeah. what the problem is that normal people and neuro-normal people don't understand just how much energy, courage, resilience it takes to get out of bed in the morning, right. put on your shoes, paste on a smile and take walk take a the shower. Yeah, there's nothing wrong. The metaphor I use is that there's a Greek character, Sisyphus, who has to push a rock up a hill as punishment every day. Yeah. And then we, near the top, it rolls back down. Here's the deal with mental illness. Here's what mental illness, I believe, is like. Every morning when you wake up, there's a rock and a hill. Some days the rock is small and the hill's not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is Mount Everest. But every day, there's a rock and a hill. That's what mental illness is like. And the courage it takes, the resilience it takes to crawl out of bed in the morning. Like I said, take a shower based on a smile, walk through the world and, you know, not burden anybody else with your whatever. And, right. Until it's time to socially acceptable time to crawl back into it.
1: So, <laughs>
2: right. uh, yeah. It's uh, yeah. True. So, so I, I understand the resilience movement, but I I, think, I, I think didn't the know there was,
1: a, I didn't know there was a movement. Hmm, interesting.
2: Yeah. Well, the, the air force just established a c- curriculum and, um, there were several I've seen recently where they, you know, like the, the county mental health thing, they came up with their resilience curriculum. And I'm thinking, I, I your heart's in the right place. But I think, you know, and I, I've had, um, I did a blog post. I, look, I said, I, I've had two aortic valve replacements, a double bypass, a heart attack, and three cents. When I had my heart attack, I was a half mile in the woods with a dog. And I had T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. So oh, I had, I knew if I didn't get back to the car, a half mile away, I was dead. So I walked. With a massive heart attack back to the car, drove two miles home,
1: oh my survived a
2: 25-mile ride to the hospital. My doctor's looking at the um, angiogram, which is your heart beating in real time, and he's, well, he's looking at the heart attack. And he goes, man, you walked a half mile, drove two miles, and survived a 25-minute ambulance ride having that heart attack? This is my favorite line, Kristen. He goes, your will to live is off the charts.
1: <laughs>
2: I said to him, why don't we just sit there for about 60 seconds and enjoy the irony of that statement?
1: Right, exactly. Mm. So
2: I think resilience is not the right word. Uh, yeah. It's a very normal person thing to, to you know, to to, to uh, do for somebody who has an issue. I think. I mean, their heart's in the right place, but. Anyways.
1: You think that it, um, it because I, I read that I've just finished reading a book called um, "The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck." And um, it's such a great book. Oh my gosh. It's so great. And I read it and of course it's super popular and he has a podcast and you know, like 14, whatever, 14,000 five-star reviews, blah, blah, blah. But um, what was so great about the book and I've sent it, you know, to many people, I listened to it um, on a 14 hour drive to Florida to see my son. So, um, what was so great about it was it, it said, listen, we're not supposed to be happy all the time. This whole movement around that we're just always supposed to be peaceful and blissful and joyous and happy. And that's become like this measuring stick of, yep. of how pathetic or unresilient or whatever the words you want to use um, that people have, uh, you know, strive for. And then social media kicks in with the you know, perfect snapshot, where five seconds after the snapshot, people are, you know, putting knives in each other that wasn't on film. So it, it, it's, it was great to read a book that's like, you know, no, that is not the measuring stick that we should be using. Life is hard. And, uh, you know, it just it was talking about like, what you're talking about. And I thought, oh, thank god you know finally i don't know that that will catch on as a uh, it goes so against our western culture narcissism but um but i i really i loved it i was like thank you thank you for saying you know how i really feel about it there's no way i'm i i will all i will wake up to fail every day if i think that my measuring stick is that i'm always supposed to be in a joyous state
2: oh lord well and you know what i discovered uh at, uh Once a year I have pizza, because of my cardiac thing, I just do pizza once a year. And I go with an elderly friend and her friend, they're both British in their 80s. And I said to one who just retired, I guess she's 70. I said to her, are you happy? And she said, happy? I don't know. Happy. Am I supposed to be happy? (laughs) I think the British have, at least of that generation, have a different view of that happiness thing. Right. You know, I have a I have a roof, and I have a check that comes from Social Security, and I'm I'm not I'm not hungry. Huh? But they don't they don't you know they don't expect to be happy. You know, don't worry, be happy. Now they right. she's satisfied, comfortable, good health. That's the important things to her.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I noticed that too. I've never brought this up because I didn't think anybody would care. But I'm going to bring it up here. <laughs> not that I think you'll well, of course. Care, but <laughs> But I love watching um, British stuff. That's a very American thing, too, to love Downton Abbey and all that. But the reason why I love it is because of what you're talking about. And also, British actors look like regular people when they age. Yeah,
2: like that, of
1: it's fantastic. Judy Dench, Maggie Smith. I, you know, I can go male actors as well. They're just not coming to me right now. But it's like, okay, that's celebrated. And there's a show, the Graham Norton show, which you you probably know of that show, correct? Or no, maybe not. Uh, it sounds
2: familiar. I'm He's a am a big British um, murder mystery kind of cop procedural. Gotcha. You know, gotcha.
1: Uh, the Agatha Christie or or. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, my ex husband's into all that. Well, he, he has a talk show and uh, he's very funny, very witty. It's been on for 20 years. He's a wonderful host, fantastic host. And he will have a lot of, uh, you know, British people come on, but then he also will have uh, American celebrities come on. And it's shocking to have, like, <laughs> here's Judy Dench and all her amazing, wonderful, beautiful glory sitting next to this white tooth capped, perfect looking creature that is the American movie star. And just it's, it's so stark in the way that the the set is lit and how it's done. It's so stark to see it that way. And I'm like, you know, that is part of the problem with this country. (laughs) Yeah. I would agree. That's depressing uh, right there, right out of the gate.
2: Well, and I've got a friend I just visited. I was down in Los Angeles. I had a seven or eight hour layover. He was kind enough to come to a Starbucks near the airport in LA traffic because I hadn't seen him in quite some time. Uh, and he's a character actor. And he his dream was to be a his dream was to be an actor. So at age 47, he mortgaged his house in Seattle and drove down to LA. And he's, he got 113 credits. Which is uh, you know, is but you know, character actors work and right. you can see every mile he's ever traveled in his face.
1: Mm.
2: And he said, You know, I think about getting these this fixed, but he said, You know, I I said, Matt, don't no, I, don't. I think that's why you get cast is because you look like the person that, that you fit the character. they you, you're booked as the sort of world weary cop. And matter of fact, in a movie with Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall, where Duvall's a judge, I can't think of the name of the movie. Yeah, I
1: know the movie you're talking about, yeah. He
2: he plays the cop, and and Robert Duvall's, and he takes his acting seriously, and Robert Duvall's driver made a point of coming over on the last day of shooting and saying to my friend Matt, you know, Matt, on the way uh, to and from the last couple days to the set, Robert Duvall said, that Matt guy, he's he's got something. <laughs> and I think <laughs> it's probably because, you know, he looks the part. Right. he acts the part. I mean, he, you know, his, every mile shows on his face. And I think that's where the money is for him. That's I think true. that's, if more people did that, like the British actors, they don't get their teeth fixed, I've noticed. Yep. Um <laughs> They don't. <laughs> so, it's
1: like not a, it's not a thing to go do that. You don't, but the ones that come to America, on the other hand, immediately get their teeth fixed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, there's a. I just started watching one called Blue Murder. It's a police procedural, and the woman who's the star, the lead, is um, her husband leaves her for somebody younger and much thinner, and she's she's a she's a little overweight. I mean, she's a little matronly, uh, you know. But it's in the states that would never happen. I don't think it's right. It's you know, it's the hyper thin, you know, really hot, um, police officer in the tight jeans and heels and she's a mom of three and she was pregnant when the show, when the show started, she happens to be pregnant by her husband who slept her. So it's much more of a, you know, it's much more real, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, you know, I'm not putting down American television and all that, but it, it just, it's the obsession with celebrity and all, all of those things. has certainly contributed to, you know mental illness new types of mental illnesses cropping up related to um you not being good enough and no matter what you do you're not going to be good enough no matter what you do you're not going to body enough. image yeah body image um and that if you don't look like that have that kind of a life um make that kind of money you know on and on and on and on that what's you know what's worthwhile about even living it's and it's, yeah, well, you <laughs> know, <laughs>
2: yeah, but you and I, I include you in this. You can tell me whether you, you are falling to this group or not. Um, and my sister as well, has called up and I, we're talking about something. She goes, Frank, I, you know, I'd like to give a fuck, but I'm completely out.
1: <laughs> right.
2: So uh, I adopted that point. from
1: my, from my ex-husband. He just doesn't care. He just uh, he never has. I think that's why I found him one of the reasons I found him so uh, attractive, not just physically, but just, you know, attractive intellectually, all the ways that you find someone attractive when they're your person. Um, Yeah, because he just doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. And he's cared less and less and less over the years. And now he truly hes 16 years older than I am. He absolutely cares not at all. (laughs) I just love that because I still do to a certain degree, nothing like I did before. And, um, so to go to him and have him still, you know, be my best friend and say, oh, I'm having this, whatever anxiety about this or this or this and him, you know, in a very nice kind way that I can hear it remind me who cares really. (laughs) Yeah, it's
2: I'll you know, get, some, get somebody say to me after a speech, "You're so brave to get up there and talk about it." Because a lot of people would be ashamed. They go, "Look, I gave up shame in the bankruptcy, so I'm not, right. you know,
1: right. I,
2: I shame, uh, self-esteem. I don't care. You know, if I if we save one person today, you know, if, uh, my story helps. Then that's all I really care about."
1: So before you got into doing, you know, this type of, um, you know, the motivational speaking and the, you know, being an advocate, because that's, that's what you do now. And you use the skills that you bring to the table to to do that. So how has that changed, um, you know, kind of your outlook on the world, being somebody who is of service to others and that you choose to do that as you're living?
2: Well, I, I, back in the day when I, I just got out of college. I sold insurance for a half dozen years. I'd rather forgive the expression, open a vein than do that again. Um, (laughs) great business, but I saw a lot of motivational speakers and I always thought, you know, I'd like to be able to get up on stage and besides just being funny, um, make a difference. And so, uh, I mean, I knew coming down the the birth canal, what I wanted to do for a living. And that was, Stand up. People ask me, were you born funny? Yeah, funny thing happened on the way through the, you know. <laughs> um, and, but I, I didn't, didn't, until I came close to ending my life, I didn't understand really what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and by the way, I, I was a comics comic. My wife, who started out just as my girlfriend, we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Wow. Comedy club to comedy club opened up for Alan DeGeneres. And Dennis Miller and um, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin, uh, King of Queens, Kevin,
1: Kevin like Hart. Guy. No, not Kevin Hart. Kevin Smith, Kevin.
2: Kevin. Julia yeah. That guy.
1: Kevin, that guy. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And so, uh, and I, it was a good living and it was fun. We, was, we started out in the mid twenties. We came off the road when I went to work on radio, mid thirties, um, we got married. Not about a year in, and and so that was. But I was a comics comic. I mean, I you know, uh, not many people took their wife along. But um, Wendy is um is very funny. Um, I was working a ship one time, and I I like to prop up in my bunk first thing in the morning, or a cup of coffee in my iPhone, and write jokes. And I wrote a joke. Or, oh, this is great, but it's not gonna work in my act. But I think I know somebody who'll buy it. So I email it off, and an email right back. Oh man, that's great! I'll give you a hundred dollars for it. So we got to the port. I called my lovely wife. And I said, honey, you're not going to believe this. This morning I made $100 lying flat on my back in bed. It's <laughs> a long pause. And she goes, what a coincidence. So uh, very funny in her own right. And as as a friend of mine says about doing comedy, it was great to give people a 45 to 50 minute break from the world with comedy yeah. and generate those endorphins. But I always felt like there was something else I could do with it to make a living and a difference
1: right right
2: so i was making a living doing stand-up and i really enjoy it and you know on the ship i do still do cruises. i do a dozen cruises a year on holland america nice. and it's great because i'm just doing stand-up and i don't have to make any points don't have, to have any content i'm just doing stand-up but the when somebody comes up after a show a keynote and says you know, I've been in therapy for years. Two therapists. I think I've got chronic suicidality because uh, the symptoms are. But nobody's even mentioned that. I said, "Do what? Tell your therapist what you just told me." But for God's sakes, don't tell him you heard it from the comedian.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but
2: that's that's the payoff. That's the ROI. Is that it's conceivable, Kristen, that I may save a life uh, as yeah. yep. I speak, or or more, um, may give and people kind of. Dialogue. Yeah, I had a guy who did a Spokane Falls Community College and I had the slides and like one of my last slides is actually a phone number for the suicide prevention lifeline, you know, the 741741 text line. And I moved two slides down, and the guy goes, can you back up on the slides? I go, yeah, I backed up one. He goes, no, back up, back up another. He goes, no, one more. So I backed up, he goes, right there. What is the phone number and the text? And he's, I can see he's taking them down. He's writing, he's writing them down. I'm like, oh, dear God. <laughs> so, Afterwards, he's standing there, wants to talk, and I said, "I noticed you took down the toll-free number in the text line." He goes, "Yeah, because I'm I'm having thoughts of suicide." Mm. And so when we got done talking, I said to the staff, at the, you know, the the people that organized the the, the event, and because the, uh, there were people there from the mental health service, I said, "Look, you saw the gentleman I was talking to last. I he's he's in therapy, but he took down those phone numbers, so I think you should keep a close eye on it because you know." Yeah. Yeah it's um and 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 the only reason he speaks to me only reason somebody like that speaks to me I do believe is because I come out as mentally ill and right. it's rather to a rather to a clinician I mean I'm sure they're college you know they got a good education they understand all the disorders but uh, a friend of mine says if you're neuronormal you hear one music if you're mentally ill you hear another music
1: mm, neuronormal so, interesting
2: yeah, well, because I used to say normal, people gave me a hard Who's normal? Okay, fine. Neuronormal, normal, neurotypical. Um, it's, yeah, but, you know, we speak, I tell people, look, you're in crisis, call the crisis, the suicide prevention lifeline. If you're just, um, you know, you're just depressed, call a crazy person. <laughs> call me because we're less likely to be judgmental. We're not going to shoot all of We You should do this. You should do that. You should dry fish oil. Um, it works <laughs> for my uncle oh right. god I uh, can't tell you how many times I've heard that trout fish oil, oh yeah, why don't you bite my ass Um.
0: And the, be careful some fish oil might come out
1: and yeah, it's slippery Yeah. so oh. it, again
2: it, it's that, you know, I think humor is disarming um, right. the humor plus being vulnerable on stage and just burying your soul you know, I I, I know what the barrel of gun tastes like, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm it just gives people permission to give voice. It's amazing. Somebody said, how do you start the conversation? Uh, Kristen, I've noticed just mentioning depression and suicide out loud elicits the most amazing responses. People, some of whom I've just met, I'm working on a cruise ship. I can't find a place to sit. It's morning. It's breakfast in Alito. There's a woman at a table for two. There's an empty chair. I nod. Uh, I point. She nods. I sit. And she looks up. And she goes, hey, are you the comedian? I go, mm-hmm. did you enjoy the comedy show? She goes, I enjoyed it very much. I said, then I'm the comedian. She goes, what would you have <laughs> if I told you I hated it? I'm the juggler. Um, she goes, is, is cruise comedy all you do? I get that question all the time. I go, no, I'm a public speaker. She goes, uh, what do you talk on? I go, oh, here we go. Depression and suicide that I start a countdown in my head. Three, two, one. She goes, you know, I tried to kill myself twice. Yeah. We have just met. Yep. And it's like, They're just waiting for somebody to utter the magic or the tragic words, depression and suicide, to give voice to these things.
1: Absolutely. You would not. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the emails that we. Oh that we get, I mean, just really long, multiple page, and I'm, listeners, please, those of you that have sent those, I'm in no way am I complaining about that. Please keep sending them. We, we do read them all, um, and we do respond. It may take us a little bit, because we get a lot, but we do respond, but, uh, you know, just um, sometimes it's the first time somebody's ever said what's happened to them.
2: Yes. I met a guy, at a, I was doing a comedy thing down in San Diego. And I will sitting at the table, you know, in the course of conversation around comedy, all you do, no, they call the a person suicide. Guy guy, buttonholes me all the way to the bathroom. He's 69 years old. He said, uh, Frank, because um, I think I had described to him what chronic suicidality was. And he buttonholed me and, and stopped me outside the bathroom. He goes, Look, I think I have that. He goes, I've never told anybody, including my therapist. Right. Because he said, "I don't want, I don't want the 51, I don't want the fifty-one fifty. I don't want to be locked down for three days in California. It's called 5150. Um, so here's a guy who hadn't even told his therapist. He's telling me we just met. Absolutely. You know, just, I just. Um, oh, and here's what. Here's the flip side. Here's the normal people flip side of that. When um, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died within a month of each other, right. and normal people had questions, and so it, I got phone calls. Facebook messages, text messages, yeah, um, email from from all my friends, and it's like all my friends got together and said, "Well, Frank's suicidal. He'll know." <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> you know what's interesting I, too. I find this fascinating. I have a um, a step family, and uh, none of them ask about what I do um, ever ever, 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 ever. And um, which, whatever, I don't need them to, but it's just funny. They'll all talk about what they do, but they never ask what I do. Um, But every so often, rarely, there'll be this serious life and death issue going on with someone that they know. And they immediately call me to ask me what they should do. So they know what I do, but they won't (laughs) talk about it. And they share my shows to like, you know, if I do a show about, you know, my uh, sociopath boyfriend that conned me out of whatever, you know, they love those shows. So they will, or my sociopath girlfriend, because believe me, there's many men and women (laughs) uh, sociopaths out there. uh, It's equal, but anyway, um, they will forward that stuff and share it and whatever. But, they will not. It's like it's not polite family conversation for no. me to talk about it, no, I <laughs> which I think is <laughs> hilarious.
2: Yeah, my mom would say uh, from North Carolina, it's not something you talk about in polite company.
1: Yes, right. Polite company. I know my neighbors who are such awesome people. Oh, my gosh, they're wonderful people and this could be wrong but i've seen this happen with many people um, in my life that i know loosely that aren't my close friends who you know we sit down and of course we have a deep conversation they can't be friends with me and i can't be friends with them unless we can do that with each other so i'll let's say i go to a neighbor's house and uh, they're exhausted by the end of the dinner. I'm lively as hell, because I just wind up in those kind of situations, but they want to talk about home design. And I'm like, oh my God, I just interviewed the world leading expert on Munchausen syndrome. And we had this guest on who talked about how she, um, she injected herself with her own saliva to create sepsis. And she, her father was a Holocaust survivor. It was so awesome. And I swear to God, by the end of the night, they're like making notes never invite her over again <laughs> so, but that's the stuff I find interesting but whatever to each their own
2: <laughs> well and you know the um, what I found uh, is that as a group like that at a dinner party uh, don't ever invite her again but if I get somebody <laughs> alone you know they're oh. fascinated
1: Oh, dude, the, there are so many times I'm in a den somewhere with somebody for hours and my ex-husband would be like, where the hell have you been? So I know what you're saying. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I've got a friend um, uh, who's a co-author of the book we're working on on men's mental fitness. She's just a suicide prevention specialist. She's also a client. And she had difficulty in the beginning because the clinicians she worked with assumed They they didn't have any idea she was also a uh, client, you know, that she also had issues. And so they would speak ill of the clients in her presence, not knowing. Yeah. And so um, a goodly number of people who go into mental health, it seems, have an issue. But there's an unwritten rule. You don't talk about your own issues. And she said she understands that. Cause you know, you're not supposed to burden your patients or clients with your issues. Course, uh, the way they yeah. talk about it is, you know, you, you get a massage, you don't turn on the masseuse and go, let now let me do you.
1: Um, <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> but, but she broached the subject with two dozen of them at a session at the American association of suicidology annual conference. She did a session on clinicians and, you know, and, and mental illness. And, and as a group, they're like, no, no, we don't tell, don't tell, no, you're, no, don't. And, but afterwards, at least 12 of the two dozen came up to her individually and right. just spilled their guts about their, <laughs> so it's, um, her plan is this. She said, look, we can't come out individually as suffering from mental illness, as clinicians, because they'll just pick us off one at a time. But if I can if I can gather 24, including me, people, clinicians who have an issue, who are willing to come out all at once, you know, maybe have a little speakers bureau, uh, create a speakers bureau yeah. of those 24 people. If oh, we yeah. do it all at once, they can't pick us off one at a time. So that's going to be her when she gets ready to retire. we going her out. Yeah, it'll either it'll either will ostracize her or she'll be like the hero of the No,
1: year. they won't they won't ostracize her. The field is changing. I mean, I'm steeped in it from the business side too. Um, where she'd be welcome is on their, the addiction side, which addiction and mental health are the same because addiction is a mental health issue, but they, for a long time, tried to like separate it out where there's the yeah. addiction field and there's the mental health field. And we're seeing now more of it. it's all lumped together, which is, which is good. And, um, it's so funny to be, um, to have walked into the business side of the mental health field, including addiction and see just how different it is from behind the scenes, meaning the business side and then also as a podcaster, because as a counselor or, a, you know, someone that works as a quote unquote clinician on the addiction side, it's all about telling all the stuff you've done because that's how you get patient that is struggling with addiction to trust you so it's very it's so funny how it's very different in those two interesting worlds yeah you can absolutely you know say i have smoked meth i look at the tracks of my arms i have suffered from this that whatever as an addiction counselor um to addict, and it's a not not every place, of course, but um, in a lot of places, you absolutely can do that. Because um, otherwise, you know, when you're dealing with addiction, they do not trust anyone, including themselves. So yeah, it there's a very, there's a different line there in those two, two fields of outpatient mental health and addiction side of things.
2: Yeah. And I think the mental health side would benefit, I think, in, a, as evidence of when I speak, they're very open with me about their issues. I mean, when we just met. yeah, uh, you know, you know, what I mean, they, they don't hold back anything. It's, um, it's
1: fan- you know. fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we have tons to talk about and (laughs) listeners frank is going to be on our show more often so yay for that Um, (laughs) and uh tell our listeners for now where they can find out more about you
2: Uh, the website is thementalhealthcomedian.com oddly enough facebook page the mental health comedian Uh, (laughs) i think twitter is actually has to be shorter the mh comedian because of the you know the limit on on the characters what do you call yeah. It? yeah characters yeah so yeah just type in the mental health comedian and uh you'll find me on all the social media platforms Find my website and, and i am a comedian so you know you go to youtube and type in frank king comedian and if you need to laugh and who doesn't <laughs> um you'll find uh, yeah you can actually um christian uh, watch me age progress because um the video started about 89 I get older and my hair gets thinner over the decades. You can actually watch <laughs> that happening. Yay! Because, like a British actor, I'm not. I did. My mom did straighten my teeth, but in terms of uh, wrinkles and hair loss, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm just letting it happen.
1: Yeah, same here. Same here. Letting letting it all happen. My teeth were really straight and really white for a long time, and then I pulled my retainer out with pliers uh, five years after it should have been taken off manually. And, uh, you know, I should have kept it because your teeth grow forward. So now my bottom teeth are nice and crooked and I am not going to do anything about that. That is just the way it is.
2: Well, I will tell you one thing I, 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 on my bucket list was bodybuilding. I did my first contest at age 62 in October. Really? Yeah, because masters, they have a master's class. um, And And pretty much everybody else has given up. Yeah, everybody else has given up by 60. So, um, yeah. And I'm working on a keynote. It's about going from depressed and suicidal to uh, not so depressed and not so suicidal. Let's call from funk to hunk. It's going to be my...
1: (laughs) I love it. Thank you. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I look forward to co-hosting more shows with you, Frank.
2: Yes, I look forward to it too. It's been a delight.
1: <laughs> and listeners, thank you as always for sticking out, sticking it out with us over the years on Mental Health News Radio.
0: I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to ZenCharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, Copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. I'm passive, aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info@mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, For a podcast music, listen to the full song on SoundCloud at Emily.SONNE. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can't find it. Good
1: boy.